This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. So in this episode, we are going to go deep into a community-based legal aid clinic that relies on pro bono lawyers to make it happen. And you're going to hear what it's like to be in the attorney room in the thick of the night when lawyers are bringing client stories and presenting them to the legal aid experts and trying to solve as many problems as they can in one night. And frankly, it's one of the most interesting nights I've spent in many years. And I hope you agree. I think this sounds like it's going to be really interesting. I can't wait to hear it. So let's get started. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. We are here to tell pro bono stories, stories that we hope inspire you to take your own pro bono legal work to the next level. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken. I've worked in civil rights, criminal defense, and civil legal aid, but now I'm a principal at the Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy and a faculty fellow at PLI. And I love getting to talk with volunteer lawyers and nonprofit legal projects around the country about the pro bono work that matters to them. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Hey, everyone. This is Daniel Pinitz. I'm the producer of the Pursuing Justice podcast, hosted by Alicia Aiken. And for this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to talk to Lish about a little field trip that she took in Chicago. So, Lish, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I think this is the first time I've ever been called Lish on the podcast, although uh, that's what all my friends call me, so I'm good with it. But it's going to be impossible for you to, to hold the line. <laughs> um, hold on. Let me close my window. I didn't follow my own advice as producer and soundproof my environment as much as possible. So you may have heard <laughs> some New York City traffic here in Queens. Excellent. Um, well, it's all about being in in situ today. So <laughs> Exactly. Okay. So Lish, can you tell us a little bit about this field trip that you took? Well, I went on a field trip because I was curious and I was curious about two things, really. Ever since the pandemic and over the time we've been doing this podcast, People keep telling me that the pro bono that lawyers want to do is clinics. They keep saying, lawyers want clinics. We need more clinics. And I thought that was interesting because when I was a legal aid lawyer, it was hard for us to get lawyers to come to clinics. So it seemed like a big shift to me to hear that clinics were what people wanted. And so the second thing I was curious about is there's a clinic I've been hearing about for years, and they just had a 10-year anniversary. And people talk about it like it's really special. And so I wanted to know what is so special about this clinic. So I persuaded them to let me come. Awesome. So what do you think has been the shift in that perception of clinics? Well, certainly there's been a shift in pro bono generally. I mean, I started at Legal Aid in the mid-90s, and in the last 30 years, the law firms have invested a whole lot more energy and money in promoting pro bono. So that's a shift. Uh, I think that all pro bono during the pandemic was clinics. It was almost the only thing you could do. So they were setting them up on Zoom 
And uh, I think maybe more people got involved during the pandemic because they were home. They felt like they wanted to contribute and they could safely do it on Zoom in a clinic. And therefore, post-pandemic, they're like, ooh, clinic. I started doing clinics in the pandemic. And I know from several of the episodes we've done, when this has come up, this whole thing of pro bono during the pandemic, one of the small, small, thin silver linings was that people started getting more comfortable with Zoom and doing Mm -hmm. things remotely. So potentially and hopefully that that has impacted people's ability to do things like this because they realize that the barrier to entry is maybe a little bit lower than it used to be. Yes. And what I saw when I went on this field trip was an absolute hunger to get off Zoom and be in person. Yeah. So tell us more about the clinic. Where was the clinic and what's, what was the clinic all about? Yeah. So in all honesty, it was a pretty easy field trip for me because it was in Chicago, uh, which is where I live, and it's called the Catton Clinic. So it's at the Jose de Diego Elementary School, which right on the border of the Wicker Park, Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. It's 10 years old this year, which is a long time for a clinic to be thriving and successful. And it's a partnership between Cat and Muchen Rosenman, Legal Aid Chicago, and the Jose de Diego Community Academy. Gotcha. What did you find out about the clinic during your field trip? I found out a lot. I think the important thing to do is to maybe begin at the beginning, which is about the founding of the clinic. So the the founder, the father of this clinic is definitely Jonathan Baum. I'm Jonathan Baum. I'm the director of pro bono services at Catmuchen Rosenman LLP. And I started the clinic in uh, 2013. And I've actually known Jonathan for over a decade. Uh, He was actually on the school board for my kids' high school in our town, which is just north of Chicago. And Jonathan loves talking about the Catton Clinic. It always has, brings it up almost every time I see him or talk to him. And so I asked him to tell me how it got started. I was at a national pro bono conference, and there was a section session on education-related law. So I thought that might be interesting. So I went to it. And most of the talk was about suing school districts for IEPs and stuff like that, which we can't do because we represent school districts. So I was thinking, well, what could we do in the way of education? And then I heard somebody mention that somewhere, I think it was in Baltimore, that some law firm had started a legal aid clinic in urban public school to serve that community and beyond. And I thought that was a great idea because not only, obviously, are you out in the community and meeting a need, But I've spent 12 years on school boards, and one of the things I learned on school boards was that the more the the students' families are um, integrated into the school, the the school community is is one, the better kids do in school. So I thought, it's a a twofer. We're we're providing legal service, and we're probably going to help some of the kids uh, get better educated. But I knew I couldn't do it by myself, and the firm couldn't do it by ourselves. And so we then approached our friends at Legal Aid Chicago, and they worked with us to figure out this model. And then we had one of our attorneys was actually on the local school council for this school. And so she said, well, what about my school? And it's a, it's a perfect setting, not only a physical setting, but also it serves a predominantly low-income Latino population that had a need for legal services in the community. And so we spent several months putting it together, 
And we got this space, and we had tremendous cooperation from the school, and so we recently celebrated our 10th anniversary. And during that 10 years, we served over 1,000 clients, which I'm very proud of. And it's just, it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful place, and people love to come here. So are the people who come to the clinic primarily from the school? Not necessarily. It's definitely open to families from the school, and about 90% of those families are low income, so they, they're eligible for free legal aid. But it turns out the clinic has been part of filling a much bigger need that Legal Aid Chicago faces in terms of connecting with clients like from the whole city and, in fact, the whole of Cook County. And so I got Jonathan to talk about who they're seeing come into the clinic and what kind of role they think the clinic fills. We started out the clinic to serve the school community, and that's still our principal sort of target audience. But one of the things that happened with legal assistance is that because of budget cuts and so forth, community offices had to be closed. And so everything was centralized in downtown Chicago. And I know that a lot of the attorneys who were at legal assistance and now legal aid in the, in the old days look back very nostalgically on working out in the community. And they, 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 there's a little bit of a hole in their hearts for, for, that, for that lost experience. So one of the things that we were able to do was to be a model for being back in the community. So this part was actually super weird for me because I used to run the neighborhood office of the legal aid for this neighborhood where the De Diego uh, school is. And and I do have a little hole in my heart because I loved those days as a lawyer in a neighborhood office. But we were not doing a great job getting out of the office and being in the community. So our office was in the neighborhood, but all the lawyers were in the office all the time. And so I participated in the decision to close the neighborhood offices. And we figured out that we could do a better job of being in the community if we centralized our staff in one place and then invested in things exactly like this school clinic. So that's just yet another reason why I was so curious to see how the clinic was working in the era after I've left legal aid. Wow, so all of this really hits close to home for you, literally oh, and figuratively. Oh, I, I mean, I took a whole day. I like went and walked the neighborhood to see what had changed. And I, yeah, I got very nostalgic, <laughs> very nostalgic. I imagine that the lawyers who are from maybe Chicago or that neighborhood, it's just a different experience. All right. So how does the clinic work? Okay, so once a month, they set up on the ground floor of the school and they see clients from about 4.30 until usually 7 o'clock at night, but they will stay until everyone who is waiting has been helped. So when I got there, I uh, met up with Matt Duran, who's a paralegal at Catton, and he walked me through you know, what he goes through to set up the clinic every month. And so right now I'm opening the clinic, as I would call it. So I'm setting up signs so people know where to go. We're actually in a big school, so it helps to have the signage here. And yeah, I've been doing this for, it's been about nine years now. 
Oh, wow. I actually became involved because I speak Spanish and we do have a lot of Spanish speakers who come in. So there's a need for translators and interpreters. So what makes you keep coming back? It's fulfilling. It's almost selfish, but I feel good doing it, serving the community and helping others. Here, I feel like I get to see people and meet people who have real tangible problems and it helps to be able to, if we can't help them, just even listen to them. They like having an ear that they can let their problems be known and vent. And usually if we can't help them, we can refer them to someone or an organization that can help them. Describe the room that you're using and how do attorneys figure out where they're gonna work? So yeah, actually we were given this space to use because the school was not using it. And this was like a former nurse's station. So. We have a main waiting area. This is where we have people fill out the intake forms. And then we have small offices where we assign the attorneys and that's where they meet privately with the prospective clients for intake. So it works for us though. Again, we've been here for 10 years now and it's been perfect. So, so Daniel, I, I have to tell you like this was such a great community clinic space precisely because it does have all these rooms and the rooms have doors and people can have a private conversation. I have volunteered at legal clinics where it's just a big open space and we're trying to figure out how to give clients privacy by dragging chairs into a far corner. And and I really don't like it as a volunteer. Like I feel stuck and like I can't do my best ethical work. Uh, and so to see a space where they genuinely could accommodate clients having private conversations with lawyers, that made a big difference to me. I can see why people would like that clinic more than others just for that reason. And Matt even said some of the volunteers, you know, might have a favorite office that they prefer and would like to get assigned to. Uh, and then so it's you walk into the main room. It's a kind of a big room. We've got like a greeting desk and then there's the offices. But then in the back is the attorney room. And, I, and I'll let Allison Clark, who's an associate at Catton, tell you about the attorney room. I am in the back office of our De Diego Legal Clinic. This is where we come to talk to the legal aid attorneys, and then it's also stocked with snacks and water bottles for all of us. But yeah, just a back room in the school. We have a lot of tables that I can see have been used for many different purposes. A hodgepodge of chairs collected, lots of boxes, I'm assuming from the start of the school year. And have you done this clinic before? I have. I actually started uh, volunteering with the clinic when I was a, a 1L in law school in 2019. And so I volunteered, and with the exception of the pandemic a little bit, I've been doing it ever since. So what makes you keep coming back? When I first started coming here, it was nice because it was a way that I could stay involved outside of this very insular law school community. And then I kept coming back because I started to get frustrated, really, with some of these systems. I think a lot of people who come in here, they're in a situation where somewhere along the line, a system has broken down for them. And for one reason or another, they haven't been able to get the help that they need. And so they're able to come here and we can help them out and work through that broken system and help them navigate it. And I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to do this job just because the systems would work and people would have resources. Um, but until then, I, 
if the systems aren't going to work for them, then we should. The, the thing I wanted to say is, like, these are literally the first two people I talked to yeah. at the clinic. Before I came, I knew Jonathan. But I just walked up to Matt, and he's like, I've been coming for nine years. And then I walked up to Allison, and she's like, I've been coming since law school. That's everyone that yeah. I talked to. They just they just come, and then they keep coming. Yeah, I was going to say that's the thing that, that jumped out at me the most for, from hearing from them is, wow, that's a really long time to commit to anything, really. Right? <laughs> Especially something like this, if you're a busy lawyer and you're volunteering your time. I agree. Uh, nobody said this, but I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason why Allison, Allison was a Northwestern Law School student, she might have gone to Catton picked that for where she wanted to have her career because she was already connected to Catton through the clinic. So it's not the primary goal of the clinic, but for a lot of law firms, when they're trying to figure out how to stand out to people who both, you know, they want to be a corporate lawyer, but they also want to have a meaningful life. I think getting law students involved in a clinic like this, it's a, it's part of what makes them feel connected and attached to Catton. So it has some side benefits as an organization to Catton in terms of recruitment, retention, and loyalty. Another thing that comes to mind is just, and I think we might hear about this a little later, is all of the logistics it takes for just from a planning and coordinating perspective to yes. have something like this, especially on such a recurring, regular basis, getting enough lawyers from the firm, obviously yes. having the infrastructure at the legal aid organization. I mean, I think if you talk to the Catton lawyers, they'll say it works because of the legal aid Chicago lawyers. And if you talk to the legal aid Chicago lawyers, they'll say it works because of the Catton lawyers. Yeah. So when I talked to Melissa Pachola, who's the director of the Pro Bono and Community Partnerships, she says that you also have to have the community. You can have great pro bono lawyers and great legal aid lawyers. But if you're putting something out there that the community doesn't need or want, they're not going to come. Uh, and so she feels like those three elements are what makes this clinic work so well. Uh, but I also asked, you know, Jonathan to talk about what he thinks makes the structure of this clinic work so well for Catton lawyers and Catton paralegals. Well, it, it varies their professional diet. Is, is a big part of it. When you work in a law firm, you don't have a whole lot of, of contact with individual clients. It's a different kind of relationship. One of the things we have found over the years is it's often difficult to get our attorneys to come to the clinic for the first time. And the reason is because of what we call the fear factor. And that is attorneys in, in a setting like our law firm are used to feeling competent. And they don't like the idea of going into an environment in which they might not feel competent, in which they might have to say, I don't know, or I'll have to look that up, or I'll have to talk to a colleague who knows more about this. And it's a bigger problem with more senior lawyers than with younger lawyers, because younger lawyers know they don't know anything. But they are attracted, But and I think the proof of it is that as difficult as it sometimes is to get attorneys to come for the first time, we have never had an attorney come to our clinic and not come back. Because once they see how rewarding it is, how meaningful their work is to the people you're, they're working with, often you can't so even solve their problem, but they're so grateful that someone's even listening to them. And that, that kind of radiates to the attorneys and, and makes them feel good. 
wow, that is really amazing that they have never had an attorney come and not come back. I that is an know. amazing stat. And I'll, I'll tell you, I wasn't sure I believed him. I've heard him say that before. But then when I got there and talked to people, I was like, oh, <laughs> I believe you. So clearly they are doing something very, very right at this clinic. Mm-hmm. And people keep saying it makes them feel good. But it makes me curious, what are the problems that people are bringing to the clinic? And what do the lawyers actually do when when they get there? Part of what makes the clinic both exciting and also terrifying is that you really have no idea what people will bring in terms of problem. Um, There are some patterns and there are some boundaries, and I had Jonathan explain them. We do all kinds of civil issues. We don't do criminal, although we do expungement. The most common issues, uh, by far, family law and public benefits. Also, a landlord-tenant, immigration, consumer issues, that's the bulk of it. And so whenever whenever the clinic is happening, there's Catton folks here and there are Legal Aid Chicago folks here, right? The, the basic drill is we have the Catton attorneys in the various offices with the Northwestern Law students assisting them. And um, after they have done a preliminary interview of the client, they go into what we call the attorney room. And the attorney room is where the Legal Aid Chicago lawyers are. Uh, And some of them are physically present. Some of them are physically present, and some of them are available by phone to consult in particular specific issue areas. So then the the Catton attorney who's done the interview comes in and said, this is what what I've heard. And sometimes the Legal Aid Chicago attorney will say, this is the advice you should give, but more commonly they will say, here are some more questions you should go back and ask. <laughs> and so, and sometimes that happens multiple times. <laughs> so they, they go back and ask the questions, and then typically, you know, it ends with, with advice, uh, sometimes with referral to another legal aid organization, and sometimes with an extended representation. So, Daniel, that attorney room that Jonathan is talking about, that's where I spent most of my night. And I'm not kidding. It was so much fun. It took me right back to my legal aid days. I actually texted my son, who's a paralegal at a public defender's office now. I texted him. I was like, I've never felt so alive. Uh, It was was great. And in fact, whether they wanted me to or not, I ended up jumping in to help analyze cases. And everybody was so good-natured about it. They just rolled with it. It was this very all-brains-welcome atmosphere. That's awesome. So it sounds like everybody had the same kind of energy. But Oh, yeah. The, the energy was fantastic. And they do it every single month. I think that there's something about September at a school, you know, that everybody, it's kind of a renewal and a rebirth. And so they said that their September clinics are usually more crowded. And and the law students, a lot of the law students were 1Ls. And so they're literally in their first month of law school. And everybody was just excited to be there. And And, you know, I said it's a great space for a clinic. It is. But this attorney room is chock-a-block with just junk. Like, it's the room where the school puts stuff that they don't need anymore, but they don't want to get rid of, and they're not sure what to do with it. Clearly just gets kind of put in this room. But in honor of the clinic, there are three desks that you can sit at. But it's not like a 
comfy club atmosphere. It's like a crowded little low ceilinged room, but the energy was bouncing off the walls the whole night. Everybody was just really engaged. Tell us a little bit more about the attorney room. Yeah, so there's three Legal Aid Chicago attorneys in that room, Melissa Bartolome, Melissa Pachola, and Tara Carone. And you might in the tape hear someone refer to Melissa Pachola as mop because that's how they keep the two Melissas separate uh, from each other. So they've got uh, laptops, they've got internet access, they've got a printer, and they have this magic box of informational flyers that they've put together over time. And they kept digging into that all night. And then they wait for pairs of Catton attorneys and Northwestern law students to come into the room and present client cases. And sometimes all three of them were talking to separate pairs at once. And this night, the clinic was really busy. So there were a lot of case presentations. And I, like, here's what it sounds like. What kind of issue do you guys have? Spongebob of an armed yeah. robbery from 20 years ago. Okay. I'll take that one. Tara's going to take that one. Hi, guys. This is Matt. Hey, All right, so this might be a relatively straightforward issue. Yep. She was convicted of an armed robbery 20 yep. years ago in 2003. She yes. says she didn't do it. Her husband and her cousin took her car yeah. and they did it. I, I don't think that's a that's central here because she was ultimately she convicted of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she spent three months in jail, then 30 days probation. She's had no legal issues since 2003. Okay. Her understanding was that after 10 years, like it'll just disappear. The last job, when yeah. she was applying for it, she filled out that she had no prior felonies or any criminal issues because right. that was her understanding. They came back to her, they said, yeah, you do. And then so she's here because she she just wants to get it expunged. At least since then, she said nothing. She didn't bring her like background. She said she printed it out, but she forgot it. But she said since then, she said nothing else. Okay, I'm gonna look her up real quick to see if I can find, just to see what I think. But here's the situation is that if she was convicted, which she says that she was, then mm -hmm. it's eligible to be sealed. It's not eligible to be expunged. The difference is that expungement is like total erasure. Yeah. It's like it never happened. Sealing, you will still find it if you run a fingerprint-based background check. So if there's a job that she's applying for that runs her fingerprints, it'll still show up yeah. as a conviction, and they may or may not deny her the job based on that um, in that situation. And I think the thing is, if she sends us her background, then we can help her okay. seal the case. But she needs to understand that it's not the same thing as expungement. The sure. 10 years thing, I think what she's probably referring to is that it no longer shows up on your credit report after okay. 10 years typically, but it still will show up on a background check. That's probably what she thinks, and that's probably where it's confusing. But the bottom line is we can help her try to seal her record if she gets us her background. And I'm giving you a flyer mm -hmm. with instructions on how she can do that. And there's an email address on there that she can just take pictures of her background from home and email it to us. And then we'll do an intake for her and get it started. Yeah. Okay? Okay. Great. Anything else? All right, cool. Thanks, Thanks very so much. Thank you. So Daniel, there was just so much going on. So as soon as Melissa P finished up with that one, they said thank you and left. And I jumped over to listen in to another attorney interviewing a different pair about an unemployment compensation case. 
That one might be an issue because he said it was on his previous computer mm -hmm. and okay. then it was erased. But I'll. That's okay. Him. Yeah, he can just include it in the letter too. But if he has it, I'd say it would be good to add in. And then the other thing is just to note that he has to file it within 30 days of when he or the date mailed on here, which is 8.30. So I would just make sure he gets this sent in ASAP in the next 10 days. So he has about a week left to mail it in. But other than that, it looks good. He's ready to go. Awesome. Um, yeah, Easy one. He's doing Hopefully. a good job. Yeah. <laughs> cool, thank you so much. So it definitely sounds like there was lots going on, lots of activity. Everybody seems very busy. And then actually, after those two were done, there was a lull for a moment. There weren't a lot of lulls during the night. It was pretty active. But there was a lull for a moment. And so I asked Melissa Bartolome, who is the supervisory attorney in the practice group from Legal Aid Chicago, about kind of what the role is of the legal aid attorneys at the clinic. And what does it feel like when you get a team of people walking into this attorney room <laughs> with their open laptops? and questioning looks on their faces. Like, how do you feel as the person who everyone here is describing as one of the experts? It, it is a little stressful because we never know what the issue is going to be. So we can see any civil legal issue and we never know exactly what the person, the other attorney coming in to talk to us is gonna ask us about. It could be something that we definitely are experts on or it could be something that we've never looked at before. We always try to give the best advice we can. That's why we've got the laptops out, but sometimes it takes a little bit more research, takes a little bit more work because we're allowing anybody to walk in with any issue. What tools do you rely on to be able to find answers to the questions? So if it's something that we truly don't practice in, honestly, I'll usually just Google it and see what I can find and try to use my research skills from there to kind of whittle down exactly what to say. Otherwise, we have, if it is something Legal Aid Chicago practices, we have access to all of our documents from all of our practice groups. We have a kind of a cachet of referrals and resources that we've kind of created for the clinic clients specifically. What is your favorite part about the clinic? The pace of it, honestly. Like, I really like being able to reach maybe 20 clinics or 20 clients in two hours is a great feeling to really have that impact. I really like seeing people face to face too. It was hard during the pandemic to not be able to be here. So coming back and seeing that the amount of clients that we're seeing has gone up, the engagement from the attorneys is still there. It's a great feeling. I'm impressed that you were able to find some time to actually interview some of these people. So this, this whole evening was a real challenge as an interviewer because you couldn't get very far into a discussion before another wave of cat and attorney Northwestern law student pairs would come in with more client stories. And then one case came in and it was just a real puzzle. The first thing that the lawyers had to do was to figure out the family relationships because you can't begin to give guardianship advice until you figure out who's here talking to you. Because uh, that's going to change what the advice is, depending on who the interested person is. And then you've got to have an understanding of those relationships just to be able to give decent advice. One. Interesting, um, convoluted one. Oh, good. Fighting he for guardianship here. There are like five moving parties. Really so there is so who has not been adjudicated disabled. His wife. He wants guardianship of his medical. Primarily, they want, they're, they're concerned about the finances. 
daughter is fighting all of this. And, and I'm sorry, that's so I did want the, to confirm the alleged disabled person's um, daughter. And even as well, that if we right. can't yes. take the case, if there's not a severe They got married six months ago during the proceeding. During the proceeding, they have not informed the court that they're married, and it seems like they did it in a way to. Sorry, who's here? To serve. So, the disabled. Yes. Is here. She's the, the new wife and the daughter-in-law of. From a previous marriage. Okay. Or is it our alleged disabled? I'm sorry. What's the name? What's his name again? I'm sorry. You see, this is his daughter or a different. Uh, who's she has the two children. Um, the, the she has a son whose wife is here. The last page of the sub. And they consented to some. I'm gonna need a family tree. Okay. Yeah, I was about to draw it out. The husband, and this is the next layer of this. The husband who is not here, but his wife is here. They have a lawyer who is apparently representing them in this guardianship petition. I don't know how he knows that for a fact. Do you mind? Do you mind if I draw it? <laughs> Just <a> minute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So ultimately, the law student jumped in and really did draw a family tree to help everyone make sense of the relationships. And once we all got a clearer picture, then Melissa Pachola was able to give advice. But she admitted that this one was not easy. That case that we were just talking about, where the client has a very complicated guardianship issue, if I had five hours to review all of the pleadings, I could provide them probably decent advice. In the 10 minutes that I spent with them, I did my best to understand what we could and could not do and give them some direction, but it's not a complete service. I was definitely an in for a penny, in for a pound legal aid lawyers and clinics are a different skill. And I think the thing for me is, what I need to remind myself is that we are not going to take that case. So it doesn't help them as much for me to dig in and try to give them a little bit of advice when we're not going to represent them. And what they should spend their time doing is finding a lawyer to represent them in that case in particular, because that's what they're going to need. And that I could determine in 10 minutes. <laughs> so the help that they can give or the assistance they can provide is, is not always solving the case, but it can be to point them in a new direction give them next steps that they can follow. So it can be beneficial in a lot of different ways. Exactly. It's incredibly important to remember that that is help. Because sometimes if you talk to trial lawyers, they will assume that the only kind of help that counts is going to court. But giving people advice or helping people explain their situation more clearly or telling them the bad news that they don't really have a problem that the law would solve, all of those things count as help. And what I like about this Legal Aid Chicago team is that they're very pragmatic and thoughtful about what kind of help they can provide in the clinic. And they don't try to do things that are beyond what they can reasonably accomplish in this setting. So that being said, are there times where they are able to completely solve a person's problem? Yes. I mean, again, aside from what I said that Advice counts as help. And, and I say that repeatedly because that was a hard thing for me to learn and stick in my head. But also, 
there are times when people walk in the door of that clinic and they can get a complete solution. And in fact, that night, there was another interview where the client was asking for help to get a guardianship. And the clinic was able to immediately advise them on a much easier solution and implement the solution right away. The clients were interviewed by Jonathan, the clinic founder, and he had help from the paralegal Matt Duran, who was giving English-Spanish interpretation. And so here's what happened. A <laughs> 78-year-old woman wants to become the guardian, both for financial and medical issues, for her 95-year-old sister. Okay. <laughs> Is the sister here? Yes. yes. Oh, they're okay. Here. They're both here. Okay. Does and the sister have does, capacity? Yeah. Well, she's, she's answering she's freely. Answering yeah. freely. She seems lucid, yeah. Could, would they settle for power of attorney instead of guardianship? I don't know. If they have to give them what they need. What are they looking for? What do they say? What I think, she I, said, well, I, asked her, I think she wants her to make all decisions. Everything, yeah. Any kind of decision in her life. Okay, so, so like we can do power of attorney for health care and property, which would allow the sister to talk to her doctors, sit in on any sort of like medical appointment, ask about medication, anything like that, pick up the medication if that qualifies under healthcare and then for property then she would be able to talk to the bank write out checks for her talk to any entity that needs her to pay them if that meets all of their needs would this younger sister need to involve the older sister in in these things or could she just do them on her own once she has power of attorney, once she has power of attorney, then first of all, so the power of attorney is going to be initiated by the older sister. It has to come from her. She has to choose it. It can't come from the younger sister, essentially. But as long as she has capacity, then the power of attorney would definitely make sense over guardianship because for guardianship, essentially a doctor has to say that she doesn't have capacity to make decisions on her own. That would be the younger sister initiating it. Um, we can do the power of attorney tonight. Yeah. So as long as she, as that that meets their needs, and especially if the older sister has capacity, then that would be the main thing that they can do legally anyway. Yeah. So you want to do that? I can pull up the documents now and start drafting those. We'll need two witnesses. So we can use you guys as witnesses, and then we'll notarize it, and it'll be good to go. Then she can send it to the bank, send it to the hospital, and have it on file. So let me pull those up. And we'll get started uh, on it. I mean, and that was it. Like, the sisters walked out of the clinic that night with their decision-making planning documents completed. They had the official documents in English, but they also had a copy in Spanish because they were Spanish speakers. So they would understand what the documents said. And they got what they wanted, which was to have the younger sister be able to make decisions and take care of stuff for the older sister. And I bet it was a good feeling all around, good for obviously the woman and her sister because they were able to get it done then. But I'm sure that even for the attorneys working, it was nice to have that sort of quick resolution. Talk about immediate gratification, <laughs> I guess. It almost sounded like there was a moment where she realized, oh, we this is something that we might be able to do today. She even seemed to just be like, yes, let's, yes, let's do this. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, everyone was, and it was late in the night, too, when it happened, and everyone was pretty excited, especially since there had been some very complicated guardianship and power of attorney questions that had already come in. And so to be able to uh, flip the script and make this one way easier 
for these two older women was a genuinely enormously satisfying feeling for everyone. And it's also good that the that the woman and her sister were there together. They probably just came in together because they're very close and they make decisions together, which is why a power of attorney was a good solution. But because this is a walk-in clinic, you don't really know what people are bringing you. And it can be a pretty wide variety. I mean, the stories that we've heard already are just the tip of the iceberg of what came in that night. So we put together a mashup of, you know, the cases and the legal issues that they were talking about. And it just gives you a really good sense of what it feels like to be there over the course of the night. Elderly person is in his 80s and has dementia and is in and out of various nursing homes uh, and hospital care. And so it sounds like no one is quite sure at these medical care facilities which power of attorney should control. And they keep moving him between facilities and they don't know who to talk to. And so he's getting different care, getting direct, different directives from different people who are bitterly opposed. Oh my God. And okay, here's what I would say. I think that what this ultimately comes down to is her ability to advocate for him in the nursing home. So what I would recommend that she do is actually call the nursing home hotline. So this is a little interesting. He suffered a stroke that makes the left side of his body weak. He hasn't been employed since then. Okay. He's been receiving Social Security benefits. He said he tried to kind of make more for himself, and so he's tried to start learning how to trade. And in one of his trading accounts, he had about $3,200, and you can't have more than 2000 Yeah. Um, and he was filling out some paperwork for the supplemental Social Security income. They found out, and so they just sent him that saying, basically, your benefits are going to zero, and you have an overpayment for the past two months. Well, I would say that this is something that we would refer internally to our public benefits group because it's a termination of his SSI, and there's an overpayment that's going to come as well. So both of those things would qualify for us to see if we can get him an appointment with our Mm -hmm. public benefits attorneys. SSI is very challenging because it's a very low amount of income and it sort of traps you, right? Welcome to poverty in America. I wanted to also say, so he can't, he'll he never be able to go above $2,000 in assets while he's on SSI. That's a hard and fast rule. It hasn't changed in many years. She was under the impression that she would be able to stay under this new landlord. She flipped and then is now being really aggressive to get her out. She's paid her rent every month, but they never signed a new lease when the building was purchased from the previous owner. And now this lady apparently is very confrontational with her, like confronts her, what'd you say, like three or four times now. Waited outside her house for two hours, towed her truck, um, all that sorts of things. I think she is just feeling the squeeze of this impending eviction. She's been there nine years, so I get it. It's probably her home. Did she get a notice from them? She'd been there for nine years, regardless of the fact that the lease has expired. Um, she's entitled not to 30 days notice, not to 60 days notice, not to 90 days notice, but 120 days notice. Has she reached out to them at all um, since she received the notice? To the tow yard? Yes. It sounds like she has, like, just to see if she can get her truck back. Um, It sounds like they want her to pay. They want her to pay? Okay. Why was it towed in the first place? Because her landlord was being spiteful. Okay, this is with the, um, her car that was towed. So it was in her parking spot. 
like for the apartment right, and the landlord and the landlord towed it. it she can't afford the towing fee and so she got this notice from them saying if she didn't pay the fee they were going to um notify the court and the secretary of state and there was a chance that they revoke her license um or suspend it um for non-payment of a tow fee is that doesn't sound right to me at all okay I don't, I don't see why they can suspend her license for failure to pay the tow fee. They can impound the car. Yeah. They can keep the car, but they can't okay. They can't with her license. I think rather than trying to figure out it now, let's take a picture of it. Okay. And let's say we'll follow up on it. Sounds good. It is a home renovation. He is in to these two contracting brothers $10,500. They did 80% of the work. They stopped showing up to do that. In the midst of this project, he hired them to do countertops in another part of the house because they were doing good work at the time. At the time, they were still showing up. Okay, okay, okay. Paid them $3,000 for the materials, never got the materials, countertops were never done. So he tries to get in touch yeah. with them, ends up going to their address listed here, which is their house. The brother comes outside, he confronts him, and gives him title to his car as collateral. So the client is not looking for representation. Okay. Um, he just wants to know if it's worth pursuing. So the answer is what's worth it to him may not be worth it to me. Mm -hmm. What's worth it to you may not be worth it to him, right? Mm -hmm. They definitely breached the contract. Right. The issue is if the brother came out and is like, look, here's the title of my car, they may not be liquid enough, the brothers, to be able to pay him back. Active duty military, but he's coming okay. to us with a eviction um, proceeding. He and his family live in a um, private contractor housing development that's apartments that the military pays for. The military adjusted his housing credit and didn't pay. He said basically his JAG attorneys said, I can't represent you on this, but like you're probably covered by the Civil Service Members Relief Act. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's kind of looking for how to get relief under the Service Members Act and I think representation probably if we have a good referral. Okay, so right, we don't do Lake County, but Prairie State does. So we can give him a referral to Prairie State Legal Services for representation in the eviction. I would recommend that he go to the hearing on the 26th and ask for additional time to at least consult with Prairie State. Yeah. Can you get his permission for us to be able to refer directly to them though? Yeah. So this isn't even everything, starting with there were three legal aid attorneys and stuff just kept coming in. And so at some points I was running from one side of the room to the other side of the room to try to get tape. So I didn't even catch all the cases that got uh, considered that night. And so how many people came tonight? What the, what that loss 31 people came. And how many people were you able to see? We were able, to, we would have seen all 31, but we only were able to see 26 because five of them left. <laughs> and it's now 7.20 and you all have been going since 4.30? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much nonstop. Nonstop, nonstop. Yeah, we have a great crew. I'm so impressed. <laughs> But on top of that, and now, Daniel, I think I'm going to sound like a late night infomercial for knives, but <laughs> I am not kidding you. Wait, there's more. Because this clinic also included people completing end of life planning documents as a 
parallel process the whole time that the walk-in, come get advice on your legal issues clinic was going on. Melissa Pachola explained it to me. The other function that we're doing here, in addition to seeing clients and providing them advice, is we're actually helping clients finalize advanced directives that either we prepared previously or prepared on site by notarizing and having them witnessed and executed so that these are totally final. So this was a virtual opportunity for the volunteer that we're now we're using our in-person presence to finalize and get over the finish line. So that's simultaneously occurring while all of this advice is happening. On top of the people that I saw in the waiting room yes. meeting with lawyers and law students. Yeah, so that's the printing that you're hearing in the background, that worrying. It's the advanced directives being printed so we can execute and notarize because we also happen to be notaries. That makes complete sense to do that. Uh, yeah, just use the space that you've got and the people to also get this relatively simple thing done, but you've got to do some advanced planning to make it happen. There's just so many things that seem to need to happen to have something like this run so flawlessly and be executed so well. Everything from like you were just saying, listening to the needs of the community and seeing what are the actual things that people need. And then from there, if you're the legal aid organization, having your own coordination amongst yourselves, but then also having that partnership and a really strong partnership that will last seven, eight, nine, ten years. Right. So it's really impressive that they've managed to, it seems like, get all of these things firing on, on all cylinders. I agree. It's impressive and it's also eminently doable at the same time. Like, these are all really smart, thoughtful people. And so sometimes it just becomes a matter of turning your attention to the issues in a different way. And it's and it's why we wanted to do this episode, because, you know, we've done episodes about somebody who was sitting in prison for years for a crime that he didn't commit. Uh, the, the very first case of land reparations and land being returned to a black family. Like, these are incredibly important, high profile events. But this is a kind of pro bono that actually can build stronger communities that really smart people in legal aid and in law firms can make a huge difference one case at a time. They just have to turn their attention to it. And then when they do, they can have an amazing outcome like this one. And, and it was a terrific night. It really was. Honestly, by the end of the night, I was a clinic convert. And that has never been a true thing for me in my 30 years of practicing law. This was the night that I genuinely believed clinics were interesting and important and fun. And I got really excited and I also got a little disappointed that it was over. And so I, actually I was bemoaning the fact that so many clinics are law firm specific projects and I don't work in a big law firm, so I can't volunteer. And Melissa, she did not miss a beat. She was like, oh, we have another clinic that's open to you know, any lawyer and it's in a different neighborhood. And I was like, meanwhile, I am exhausted. So I was like, sure, sure. That sounds good. That sounds good. And I swear that night, Tara Carone closed the deal, sent me a sign up email and I'm all signed up. I'm going to the clinic in November as a pro bono attorney. I can say, honestly, I don't know if we would use this, but if I was a lawyer doing a clinic like this, I would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. It just seems super cool, super connected to the community, you're working really closely with others. It's a very tight, compact amount of time, high energy. So if someone's listening to this, 
and they are, let's just say, a associate, junior, or otherwise at a, a firm, how might they get started at a clinic? If you're at a firm that has a pro bono coordinator or a pro bono partner, ask. You've probably gotten emails that you maybe didn't quite read telling you about clinics. So start by asking your pro bono folks. But if you if your firm doesn't have that resource, then I would say go to your local legal aid, go to your local bar association. There are absolutely clinics happening all over the place, and some of them are in person. Some of them are uh, virtual. Some of them are specialized. Some of them are generalist. But I think if you just really scratch a stick at it in your legal community, you're going to find opportunities. And then it's just up to you to get signed up and show up. So, you know, we've we've shown a spotlight on the night of the clinic, and it is important to remember that there are so many things that are happening back at the office, both at Catton and at Legal Aid Chicago, that make this work. Things like, frankly, giving the Catton lawyers billable hour credit for their pro bono work. Things like listening to pro bono lawyers when they say, I'm afraid to go to the clinic and get it wrong, and then offering them training and support to address that need. Uh, Things like Legal Aid Chicago committing to having multiple staff there on an evening when they already had a hard legal aid job all day. You know, all of these things that happen in the background are part of what makes this work. It really is like a symphony where you can be impressed by the performance, but none of it happens if you don't have the right kind of planning for the instruments and the right kind of rehearsal. Special thanks to everyone who let me participate and record their work at the clinic. From Cat and Muchin Rosenman, Jonathan Baum, Allison Clark, Matt Duran, Adrian Jonak, Zach Schmitz, and Brett Wilson. From Northwestern Law School, Thomas Burnett, Nikki Waugh, Alina Priscilla. And from Legal Aid Chicago, Melissa Bartolome, Melissa Pachola, Tara Carone, and Jordan Sund. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.